Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 82. Six games in to the 15-game make-or-break stretch. The Brewers, 5-1 and one with two series victories. And on Thursday in Philly, you got Cy Young Burns and MVP Kelly on the same afternoon. God bless us all. What a moment that was. If that can keep going, then this team does have a legit chance to make a run. We'll talk about that as they get set for the best team in baseball, the Braves to hit AmFam Field starting for three games set tonight. We will reminisce a bit. Yesterday, Thursday, we're recording this on Friday. Thursday was two years ago today that the Bucks won the NBA championship their first in 50 years. We'll play a couple of audio clips from that. We've got the Open Championship rolling. Rory's not off to a hot start. It's not bad, but a few other golfers are off to very hot starts, making it hard on our boy. We've got a couple of top 10 predictions we'll talk about as well. The Women's World Cup starts tonight, and I have a question about seasoned coffee mugs. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's hard. Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, face hit the center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, and and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. literally just did this topic on the air 20 minutes ago before we wrapped up the morning show and clicked record on this podcast. Our buddy Matthew J, our afternoon guy, IV guy, which we talked about a few weeks ago. The guy who's getting a random IVs from places that I don't even know are reputable businesses. Are these even FDA approved? The guy who does that was disgusted this morning when he stepped into the B93 studio. He's changing out a couple of songs for his playlist, and he caught a glimpse of my coffee mug, which I don't know how he's never noticed before, and he basically threw up in his mouth. He gagged. He called me a disgrace. This is essentially what happened. He said, you just leave your coffee mug like that? I said, yeah. I don't really ever wash it. Maybe once a year this coffee mug gets washed. And I don't think I'm in the minority there. I don't think I'm the only one that's doing that, especially with work coffee mugs, where you just toss out every morning what little amount of coffee is at the bottom, and then I pour fresh coffee, Sheboygan's Finest Torquey Coffee. I pour fresh coffee in every morning, and it never gets washed. And honestly, I don't know when this one is going to get washed because the one time a year this mug would get washed – Our cleaning guy, and he was also a studio engineer, he's a jack-of-all-trades, Rick, he retired recently and moved down to Phoenix. He would wait for my annual August sabbatical. I'm only taking a couple of days off in August this year. Traditionally, I take about three weeks, about the entire month off. And he would wait for that moment and take my coffee mug and clean it, and every time I would come back whenever it was late August or September that I would get back and we'd get back into our Monday through Friday rhythm I'd come in and I'd always be a little dejected that he had taken all of the coffee mug crust 
on the side of my mug, for a lack of a better term, and gotten rid of it, and I'd just start the process over again, and after weeks and weeks and weeks, that coffee residue would build back up. I do think it adds flavor to it. Matthew J. thinks it's mold, to which I laughed and then thought, is it mold? <laughs> Could it be mold? I had never considered that. I've had some breathing issues recently. Boy, it looks like you're healthy, John. I don't know what these, what's causing these asthmatic symptoms. Maybe it's the mold in my coffee mug. I had never considered that as what this stuff is. I always just thought it was coffee residue. And we talked about it on the air. A lot of the B93 listeners on the text line and on the Facebook page that I posted about it, you can tell, by the way, it's the dead of summer when we're posting disgusting coffee mugs on Facebook. That's content. <laughs> you can tell we are in the dog days right now. Late July, not a lot going on. Well, I guess we're going to make a coffee mug a topic for the four-hour morning show this morning. This is what happens in radio. When you're in content, you're fighting for every inch, and if that's posting a disgusting coffee mug, so be it. I put that up there, and a lot of people tended to agree. One guy called it seasoned, which I think sounds a lot better than coffee residue. That's how I originally phrased it on the air. Seasoned makes me sound distinguished and cultured. That's not disgusting coffee mold. That's seasoning. Seasoning just sounds better. It's a spin zone. I like that terminology. I prefer that. That was the phrase that he used to describe it, but a lot of guys in the comment section say, yeah, we do this. The weird thing with me is, well, there's a couple weird things with me. But one of the weird things to me is that when I have coffee at home, which doesn't happen a ton, just on the weekends, the first cup of coffee I always have is here at the building because we're here so early, Monday through Friday, and I drink coffee at home Saturday and Sunday. When I do that, though, I have a cup of coffee and I put it right in the dishwasher. I don't know what the disconnect is there between work life and home life. I just don't wash the work mug, and I do every time wash the mugs at home. This mug, though, it does have quite a lining on it. And everybody on the comment section, for the most part, said, yeah, it's supposed to add flavor. We had one text that said their grandpa did that their entire life, and the texter's sister, when they were younger, she said, washed it, thinking she was doing grandpa a favor. Oh, grandpa will be so happy. I got this disgusting mug all cleaned up for him, and he was legitimately upset that they got rid of all that hard work. And if you don't ever wash it, you can sometimes have years of seasoning on that coffee mug that kind of adds to the flavor on it. Uh, it's something I've done for many, many years, and I have the same mug. When I first started the morning show, we have a break room like a lot of people, and we have just a whole assortment of mugs in there, and you would use one and then wash it and put it back. There's about 10 to 15 mugs just sitting in the break room. At one point, I determined 10 years ago probably that this smaller yellow coffee mug, which I actually legitimately think is a coffee mug that was either stolen or was taken from an old country kitchen. We used to have a country kitchen in Sheboygan. And I don't know if there's still one in Stevens Point. When I went up to school there, that country kitchen has seen some stuff. It might still be. We were just up there. I didn't see if the CK was still there. The country kitchen in Stevens Point would start their Sunday breakfast buffet very wisely at 2.30 in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning, which would technically be Sunday morning, but actually Saturday night, because they knew that not only would they sell buffets to older people when they come in before church or after church on Sunday morning, they would also get the drunken bar crowd that would walk right to Country Kitchen at bar close. That's some of my favorite memories. Those are some of my favorite memories of realizing there was a breakfast buffet, a hot, ready breakfast buffet for 7 bucks or whatever it was. As soon as you were done at the bars, you'd go to Country Kitchen. It reminds me of one of those Country Kitchen diner stop whatever, coffee mug. It's about eight ounces. You could just see it sitting upside down on a paper dinner plate or a paper dinner mat. 
plate. What what am I dinner mat? What's <laughs> a dinner mat? Place setting or whatever. I can just see this sitting down at a CK, sitting upside down, and you flip it over and you get a hot cup of coffee right away. About a decade ago, this became my mug, and it literally has just sat next to me for 10, 11, 12 years. It's the, one of the closest friends I have. It was actually in my wedding, st- ending up as a groomsman. The stories this mug could tell behind the scenes of my career here at B93. I do just let that residue, that seasoning build up. People seem to corroborate that, and there were some people in the comment section that were saying it, it is disgusting, John. This is actually disgusting. Don't let the people empower you. Don't let other people's opinions saying this is right make you feel like it is right or smart. It is not. It is disgusting. A little coffee mug conversation this morning. Yeah, we got a good hour. We got three breaks out of that from about 8.50 until the end of the show. Right when the morning show on a Friday for the last hour and ten minutes is on fumes and it's the basically dog days of summer. We got a good two or two tree breaks out of that one. Before we get into the Brewers, I just really quick want to hit on the two years ago today on Thursday. I felt like Chris Farley on when he interviewed Paul McCartney talking about the Bucks championship. Remember, remember when you were with the Beatles? Remember when you won the championship? Sure. Sure. That was awesome. It was. I felt all day on Thursday we were playing some of those clips back. We've got to play. Yeah, I know it's a part of the intro, but I've got to play the Ted Davis. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. I'll just never forget my feeling in that moment two years ago. I didn't go to that game. I didn't go to the Deer District. But one of the things I posted on the blog on Thursday was the ABC or ESPN, the game intro. And I'll never forget the intro for that game with the Spike Lee three-minute montage of championship rings. And he had the Larry O'Brien trophy next to him and said, the prize is in the house. And when Spike Lee said that, I knew what was on the line. But, you know, there are certain times and certain intros. And when you see the pregame stuff, it kind of hits home. Like, oh, my God, he's right. The trophy is in the building. The trophy is in Milwaukee. It's in Pfizer form. And it's there for the taking if you can just win this game. They transitioned from that to the Mike Breen with the drone coverage or the blimp coverage. I don't know which one they were using. Hey, welcome to Milwaukee. It's Game 6, Phoenix Suns and Milwaukee Bucks. That's my best Mike Breen impersonation, and that's why I'll never be the lead play-by-play guy on ABC. The long shot, though, of the amount of people in the Deer District, I remember saying, holy bleep, out loud, just watching it on TV. And then I also remember kind of being happy I didn't go down. I was debating not getting tickets because for as much money as my wife and I spent on the Game 4 NBA Finals tickets, the Game 6 tickets, once it became a clinching game, I probably would have had to pay double or triple what I what I paid for Game 4. There was no chance I was getting a ticket to that game. It did cross my mind during the day, should I just go down to the Deer District and just sit there with everybody else and soak it all in? I remember seeing that long shot and being amazed at the sheer humanity, the mass of humanity in all areas surrounding Fiserv. The Deer District, for a lot of that playoff run, was the patio outside of Fiserv form. Then it expanded to a place where they roped off just that front section right before you walk in, and there were thousands of people there. By that point, it was occupying that space, the southern part of Fiserv form, and the empty lot where the Bradley Center used to be, and the parking lot near the Mecca where they had three separate stages, and all of them, it was just a sea of people. And as incredible as I thought that camera shot was and how amazing it was to see that amount of support for the Bucks, 
I kind of thought, I'm glad I'm not there. <laughs> I'm just That's just too many. For me, that's too many people. I would love to celebrate with those fine folks. I, the anxiety that gave me. I don't know if I can be around that many people. Just an incredible camera shot. And then when they panned down and had the drones sweeping above them and they had them watching themselves on TV, just insane. And then it was all Giannis. I put the highlight package in the Thursday blog, dropping 50 points. They got out to such a hot start with the Giannis block and then the layup on the other end. It really set the tone. They were up double figures. People forget, though, Phoenix took control of that game in the second quarter. They were up 49-43 to at halftime. That halftime was agonizing. The second quarter went so poorly for the Bucs, and the Suns kind of got hot. And a 49-43 halftime score, that's an 80s, 90s NBA halftime score. Even a bad offensive half now in the NBA. Both teams are in the low 60s. 49-43. to And I remember, or 49-42, excuse me. I remember the first basket the Bucs made in that second half was none other than Giannis. He had an and one. And then he sort of reacted saying, come on, let's go, and used his hand motions. Like, let's, it was almost telling everybody, the team, the crowd, all right, let's, this is enough of this. Let's take this. This is our game to take. And he just took it over, dunking on guys left and right. Mid-range jumper was silky smooth. He knocked down a three or two, at least one, as a part of that highlight package. And he just took over and put the team on his back 14 days after his knee bent in an opposite 90-degree angle. And he did that. In one of the biggest games, the biggest game in Bucks franchise history. And I'll never forget, too, the Middleton shot when it was 100 to 96, and there was about a minute and a half left, or maybe a minute 15 left. Bucks had the ball, and it was one of those moments where if they don't score here, and then Phoenix comes down and makes this a one possession game, then you're really in a battle. The Bucks maintained a six to 10 point lead for a lot of that second half once they got in front. But well, that was a moment where it was a four-point game. And, boy, if you don't score here and they score and you've got a minute left and you're only up by a basket, drills one of those off-balance mid-range jumpers to make it 102-96. Then with must have been 25 seconds left where Chris Paul missed a three. It was 104-96. to At that point, you kind of knew it was done, but nothing is done until it's done. Paul missed that three. Middleton got the rebound, passed it to Drew. The surge of energy in the crowd, which was great all night, at least on TV, and I know a couple of people that went that just said it was raucous the entire night. The murmur that started once that realization set in, after he missed the three, and you look, and there's 22 seconds left, and you're up by eight, and Phoenix isn't even fouling, and you're crossing half court, and you just think, oh, my God, they did it. They they absolutely did it. They won the title. They did it. And they call timeout. There's a foul. Giannis got the 50, the one of two. It's weird to me. The fact that he went one of two, he was so good at the free throw line that night. The fact that he went one of two almost made it better. I don't know how it would have been weird for him to score 51. You know what I mean? 51. Obviously, more is better in most situations. There's just something baseball about that perfectly round number of 50 that made that moment greater. And then you got this the next day. This So this was two years ago today, one of the funniest videos of Giannis with the trophies. He somehow left Pfizer for him and had both his MVP trophy and the Larry O'Brien trophy in his Mercedes at Chick-fil-A. Just, uh, there's 150,000 people watching you right now. Really? Yes. One of my favorite parts about that is the woman taking his order at Chick-fil-A literally has no idea who he is. So can I, can I have, please, a 50-piece Mac Minis? 50, exactly. Not 51, not 49, chicken minis, yes, 50. 50. And um, let me have a large drink, no ice, 
half Sprite, half lemonade. That became the drink of the summer in Milwaukee, by the way. The half Sprite, half lemonade, no ice, put a little vodka in there, whatever. That became the summer drink in Milwaukee after that reference to it. That girl at Chick-fil-A, when he told her there's 150,000 or 200,000 people watching, really? Had no clue who he was. No clue. And Bucks fans slowly, because it was Instagram Live, realized where he was, and eventually they surround his car where I can move this forward. Two years ago today. At some point, Mariah, his girl, says, is this how it's going to be now? (laughs) This is what we're going to have to deal with now? Ay, ay, ay. That was two years ago. I don't know if that works if he scores 51. You know what I mean? Does that work if he says 51 Mac Minis, 51 Chicken Nuggets? There's just 50 was perfect. That second missed free throw he missed was actually perfect. I'm not going to say he did it on purpose. I'm sure he didn't. It just sounds better that he scores 50. And he's only one of two players that has scored 50 in a clinching game. It was him and Bob Pettit of the St. Louis Hawks back in 1958. That St. Louis Hawks team beat the Celtics, Bill Russell. That was the only time Bill Russell went to the finals as a player or a coach or a player coach and did not win. The only one he did not win. Bob Pettit scored 50 in that clinching game. That Hawks team, as a side note, started as the Milwaukee Hawks. There's a weird Milwaukee connection there. They were in Milwaukee for one year in the mid-50s and then went to St. Louis when they won the title in 1958. Bob Pettit, by the way, played games at the Sheboygan Armory. I'm all, I've got all sorts of fun facts for you here. Are they made up? I don't know. Or am I just making it up? I know for a fact. I'm just guessing also, really. I love that clip, that Barkley clip so much. 50 made it perfect, though. And when the graphic hit on the bottom of the screen after the final buzzer sounded and it just had the Bucks logo and said Milwaukee Bucks 2021 NBA champions, I could just, all I could do was stare at it in disbelief. And in many ways, it still feels like a fever dream. That was the gist of my blog on Thursday. It still feels like a fairy tale. For all of my life, for all my life, I just, it was a joke to think the Bucks would ever win. And I loved them. And I loved the, they were our local team. I'm just a guy. I can't root for any other team other than my local teams. In some ways, I'm envious of people who can do that. They can root for other teams. And in some ways, I don't trust them. <laughs> I can only root for my local teams. If they're good, great. If they're bad, then I'm just tied to that bad team for a long time. If you would have said in the late 90s or the mid 90s that one day the Bucks would win a title, I said in the blog, the more likely scenario would have been if you gave me two options in 1994 that the Bucks would win a title one day or Brett Favre would throw a no-hitter in Game 7 to clinch a Brewers World Series championship, I think the Favre scenario might actually have been more likely in my head. And a lot of people said it just was unfathomable that the smallest, most destitute market for basketball was ever going to win a title. The meteor, the asteroid that is Giannis, hits Milwaukee, hits Earth in 2013, He changed things slowly, not right away, but changed things. And it wasn't until 2019 where you kind of thought, my God, maybe they could win a title. They come up short that year. They're on pace to win 70 games the next year. That gets undermined by a global pandemic because, of course. And at that point, we didn't know that Giannis was signing that extension. It felt like maybe he was gone. Why would he stay with us? And then you wasted those two years. He signs the contract in November before the magical year begins. It just It's just hard to believe, not only that they win the title, but that you've got this generational player who had a Jordan-esque, LeBron-esque performance in a clinching game that will forever be remembered in NBA history. That happened for our franchise? Are you sure? It did. Two years ago. May the memory never fade. They need to change that schedule. I put that in the blog, too. We need to go back to that schedule. 
what's neat for Bucks fans about this time of year is we are the only on this day in NBA history ever in July. Typically, the season is over in early to mid-June. At at most, if you get a Game 7 in the finals, you're knocking on the door of Father's Day. That's cool for Bucks fans because it's always going to be that way. This run of two years ago or three years ago or four years ago on this day in July, you're never going to have that again. They need to look at that schedule, though, and do the pandemic schedule. There are some things that the pandemic forced into fruition that should stay. Some people, for some of you, that's working at home right now listening to this podcast. One thing that the sports world should have taken from that is the NBA should start a week before Christmas like it did that year. It should be, it should really be 60 games, not 82 or 70. It was 70 that year. At least you shave 12 games off of it. Start a week before Christmas, 70 games instead of 82, and you wrap up in the dead of summer. The dead of summer is when basketball should be played. I recall feeling that way in the moment when that was happening in June and late June and early July as that run continued. This makes sense. This is when basketball should be played. And nobody outside of me and maybe a handful of people cares about the NBA in late October, November, up until Christmas. That's always the triple header, the big coming out party every year where the people start to really start to pay attention to the NBA, that Christmas Day slate. You're always competing with the NFL from October until that point, December anyway. It just makes more sense. I'm sure baseball wouldn't be happy about it, but whatever. It'll, it'll be fine. It's fine. The, the NBA Major League Baseball cross-section, I don't know if that's that huge anymore. That would be a point of contention, I guess. You'd be then overlapping a lot of the baseball stuff. It just felt right. That whole schedule felt right. All right, speaking of baseball, Brewers. We said that they started a 15-game stretch on Friday that could make or break their year. If they can stay in it, they'll likely be buyers, hopefully, at the deadline. Hopefully, mistakes were learned from last year. And that sets the tone for the stretch run, this 15-game stretch. It started with the six-game road trip, three in Cincy, three in Philly, and they're five and one. Remember on Friday last week, I was saying, given the schedule, the strength of schedule, and where you're at on the road, and some of the health issues with this Brewer team still, I thought eight and seven would be a really successful road trip. Remember, we said I'd love for them to make a statement and go 10 and five or whatever on this road trip. They may do that. I even thought seven and eight or six and nine probably keeps your head above water enough to the point where you could justify buying at the deadline. But what a start. They go into Cincy, they sweep Cincy. Then they move on to Philly, who right now is in that wild card run. You get the loss, three runs. They fall. They fell one run short in game one of the series. They lose that one four to three, tight game. And Julio Tehran, I guess he's going to get starts because he has to. First six starts for Julio Tehran, you couldn't have asked for anything more. He hadn't pitched in baseball since 2021. And in 2021, he pitched one game in five innings. He hasn't pitched any real innings in Major League Baseball since 2019, four seasons ago. They pick him up off the scrap heap, and in his first six starts, he's got an ERA of 1.5, and it felt like every game he was going out there and giving you five or six innings of one-run ball. That was fun, but as sometimes happens with stories like that, where you pick up a guy that has not been on the field for a long time, they can see some success in the short term, but the longer they're out there and the more they're making starts, the more teams start to figure them out. We may be getting to that point with Julio Tehran. I'm not ready to write him off yet. His last three starts, though, have not been good. He gave up seven earned runs, six earned runs, and then five earned runs or four earned runs against Philly in four and two-thirds. He's getting hit a little bit hard. The fairy tale for that might be over. 
He'll make at least two or three more starts. Hopefully, he can get it back on track. Hopefully, he can burn his former team on Sunday when he takes them out against the Braves at Ampham Field. That's one of those to keep an eye on, though. He may be running out of juice a bit. They lose that game. They didn't get to the four-run threshold. It's unbelievable how concrete that four-run threshold is. They scored three and lost. Then you got the William Contreras game on Wednesday where he had three hits, two RBI doubles, and at the end of that game with runners at the corners and one out with Devin Williams out in the ninth inning, he guns down a runner at second base with a pinpoint cannon Mega Man throw. The next pitch, Williams strikes out the batter he was facing, and the game's over. You go from in the blender in, was it a one-run game on Wednesday? I forget. I'd have to get the schedule up. I don't have the schedule up. Why wouldn't you get the schedule up before you start the podcast, John? <laughs> These, This is all revisionist history. We'll edit this out in post. I'm pretty sure it was a one-run game. They won 4 nothing on Thursday. They won 5-3. to Two-run game, but two on with the heart of the order up and only one out. For that sequence of him gunning down a runner and then Williams striking out the batter the next pitch, all of a sudden you go from walking the tightrope to it's over in basically two plays, one pitch. Get the 5-3 win. Contreras continues to impress. I saw some debate on Twitter Brewers fans, I would say, I don't know, it's split 80-20 or 70-30. Because now you're hearing the narrative of the hater trade change a little bit. I think rightfully so. Some Brewers fans or some baseball fans will say, well, you can't really do that because this, that, and the other thing. They traded hater last year. We all remember that, right? <laughs> At the deadline. Picked up nobody and traded their all-star closer. Smart. They got back, who did they all get back? They got back Estuary Ruiz, the outfielder. They got back Robert Gosser, who is one of the top prospects in their AAA system right now, left-handed starting pitcher. They got back Taylor Rogers, who was the Padres' closer, who was a nightmare for the Padres before the deadline and a nightmare, Freddy Krueger nightmare for the Brewers, basically every time he took them out after that. They got one more guy, right? And then they cut him. They got... Denelson Lamette, and they cut him right away, even though he was kind of having a decent year, and he went on to have a sort of decent year in Colorado. They picked him up after the Brewers cut him. That was the return for Hader. A guy you cut, a guy who had a 7 ERA, a guy who is a good prospect, and an outfield prospect that had a cup of coffee with the Brewers last year. On the surface, given not only the return, but what that trade did to the locker room and how it basically undermined the entire year, disaster. You turn Estuary Ruiz in the offseason trade into William Contreras, uh, all-star two years ago, who was splitting time and catcher in Atlanta, now becomes the full-time catcher with that trade in Milwaukee. And in that deal with Oakland as the third team, you also get Yoel Piamps, who you could make a case right now, based on the metrics, is the best reliever in baseball. Better than Devin Williams, better than the best closer. His ERA is sub-1-9. His strikeout ratio is insane his, what is it, WRC, whatever that stat is, plus it's another way to measure how important a player is to the team and how much they impact winning. You could make a case he is the best reliever or at minimum top five relievers in baseball right now. You got both of those guys back, and all you had to give up was Estuary Ruiz, who you would not have gotten if you had not made that hater trade. Some Brewers fans are now saying, well, you basically traded Hayter and you got Gosser, who's one of your top pitching prospects, William Contreras, an all-star level catcher who's having a great year, who you have under team control for five more seasons. That's a huge part of that. And you have one of the best relievers in baseball in Yoel Piamps. They're repositioning the trade to say, well, now this is actually what you got. There's some pushback from some Brewers fans that are saying, you can't do that. The initial return was horrible. 
it basically ended the 2022 season, which you also can't take out of the equation. I don't know. I think you can do it. <laughs> I think you can. I understand you're spinning it a bit, and you cannot lose sight of the fact that 2022 was looking like a playoff year, and the hater trade, for the most part, is what deep six the entire year. That's a part of the conversation. I think it's okay, though, to take some of the pieces you got back and then see what those pieces got you and say, hey, we got this ultimately for Hater. I think that's okay. Some Brewers fans, 25 30% on Twitter when that conversation was happening after the William Contreras game on Wednesday were saying, nah, I don't like that. You could do that and go all the way back, though. I saw one trade tree that then said, okay, well, if you want to do that, then really this all goes back to the J.J. Hardy trade. The Brewers draft J.J. Hardy. That's where the J.J. Hardy origin story begins. He has a pretty good career in Milwaukee. Starts to fall off. They trade him straight up to Minnesota for Carlos Gomez. Carlos Gomez turns into a valuable piece, a two-time All-Star Gold Glove winner. They trade him in 2015, initially to the Mets. Then Wilmer Flores cried during the Mets game when he found out that he was getting traded. Mets owner called their GM and said, we can't trade this guy. Remember that? That's also a part of it. Wilmer Flores crying is how you end up with Yoel Pyops and William Contreras. The Mets rescind that trade and say it had something to do with the physical for Carlos Gomez didn't check out. The Brewers then go back to the drawing board and then make a trade the next day with the Astros that brings you Adrian Hauser, who is still on the team and has been productive this year, brings you Hayter and Brett Phillips and one more guy, I forget who. Then you're able to turn Hayter later into the four guys you got for the trade deadline last year, and then one of the guys you got back, you end up turning into Contreras and Piamp. See, it goes all the way back. It goes all the way back to that devilishly handsome shortstop they drafted back in 2004 or three, J.J. Hardy. You can do that. If you're going to do that, you can go all the way back and do the whole butterfly effect thing. It does look better on paper. When you see the trade, trade hater, and you get Piamps, and you get Contreras, and you get Goss, it looks a lot better now. Contreras, a huge part of that win on Wednesday. And then yesterday, you got Cy Young Burns. He has been untouchable since the haircut. Big haircut. Since the haircut, he has made four starts. In those four starts, he has given up four total runs, has a 1.33 ERA, and is 4-0. And he right now in that four-game stretch, I know some people are saying, well, this is what he looked like in 2021. He may be better than that. I think he's better than 2021 Cy Burns in this four-game stretch in the month of July. He gives you eight shutout, ten strikeouts. The Phillies had no chance. He was carving them up like a Christmas ham. They just It was one of those games where we've seen it plenty of times on the other end, too, where an opposing pitcher does that to the Brewers. You just know this offense is not going to be able to touch this particular pitcher on this particular day. It's awesome when you're rooting for the team that has that pitcher, and we had that pitcher yesterday. Just at no point, just totally non-competitive at bats. Or uncompetitive? Non-competitive? Discompetitive? At no point did it look like they were going to touch Burns, and he goes eight strong yesterday. Yelly gave you the offense, three-run bomb. He also had a double and a single. We got Cy Young Burns, and we got MVP Yelly on the exact same afternoon. Abner Uribe went one, two, three after one walk. One, two, three with three strikeouts through the heart of the order. This kid's going to be unreal. Tossing 101, 102, 102 and a half yesterday. Gets those final three outs, and the Brewers get a series win. Five and one in this stretch. They are a season best 54 and 43, 11 games over. They are now 44 and 9 when they score four runs or better. And I know there's a whole segment of Brewers fans out there or baseball fans out there that are saying, all right, this team can win the division. Clearly, they could win the division. They could get a wild card. They can be a playoff team. 
but this team is not going to be able to compete with the Braves if they have to face them in the NLDS or the NLCS, or this team is not going to be able to compete with the Dodgers or whatever, whatever team, fill in the blank. They're not going to be able to compete with those teams in a best of five or a best of seven. Why? Why? You get a bat or two. That's the argument you're hearing from the portion of the fan base that does not want to give up high-level prospects to bring in a rental bat or two because that group of fans does not think this team is one or two bats away from being a World Series championship team. And there is that group of fans with any team that says, unless this makes this team a title contender, unless this makes this team a World Series contender, then don't waste the prospects. Don't even waste it. I think a bat does make this team a World Series contender. We're talking about four runs. I feel like Allen Iverson. We're talking about practice. We're not talking about a lot. We've said it plenty on this podcast. That is not a high threshold. 44-9 when they score four runs. If you can get one impact bat for the middle of that lineup and one more serviceable bat to supplement the offense and Yelly keeps playing the way he is and Contreras keeps going the way he is and Adamas starts this little resurgence he's been on, if you get a couple of bats in there, this is a World Series contending team. This is a team that's pitching is so good, starting pitching and elite bullpen work, that if they score four runs, they're winning at an 840 clip. They can beat anyone if they can get a couple of bats in the middle. We're talking about two bats. We're not talking anything where they need to overhaul the roster here. I realize the offense has been bad for a lot of the year, and there is a segment of the fan base that is still sour about last year and just hasn't been able to get into this year for whatever reason. They're not that far away. I don't know why people think they're far away from being a World Series contending team. I don't know what's preventing some Brewers fans from accepting that this team, with an imp- and they need an impact bat, not just a middle-of-the-road bat. They are an impact bat and a middle-of-the-road bat away. But that is a World Series contending team. You put a guy in the middle of this order that can hit you 275, 280, and bang out 30 home runs, and then everybody gets better around that guy. And if you can find one other guy to hit 250 or 260 and be a 20 kind of home run guy, put that in the six hole, put the new chip you got in the middle of the order, put Contreras above him and Yelly above him, that's an offense that can threaten to score four runs. You're not going to win every game you score four runs, but they're winning pretty much every game. That's why I feel like you do need to take a real hard look at your prospect load, what's available at the deadline, and make a move if it's there. Because this team is a World Series contending team with a move or two in the middle. They've proven that in the last week or so. We're going to find out more this weekend. The best team in baseball at Miller Park. At Miller Park. Still, I can't get it. At AmFam Field. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the Brewers are going to dodge some of the best arms the Braves have, which is probably good news. Freddie Peralta goes tonight, Adrian Hauser tomorrow, and then Julio Tehran, the aforementioned Tehran, will go on Sunday against his former team where he had a lot of success. If you can win this series, if you could sweep this series, but let's not go crazy. Let's just take it one game at a time. If you can win this series, if you take two out of three, coming off of the way they started the second half and going five and one on a six-game road trip against a first-place team when they played them, and a wild card team, then you come home and take a series against the best team in baseball. At that point, if you're still on the side of this team is is only a division-winning team and not a World Series team, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what more they could prove if they can take a series from the Braves this weekend. They will play the Reds again right after that at home, and then they do go to Atlanta. You're going to get all six games for the season series against the Braves in the next nine. We will find out, though, a lot about this Brewer team this weekend and this week and then the following weekend when they are in Atlanta taking on a 60, what are they, 61 or 62 win Braves team. 
We'll find out a lot about how they measure up against the class of Major League Baseball, the best team in Major League Baseball. By the way, the Brewers are two games back now with how hot they've been of the Dodgers for the two seed, which would give them a first-round bye. That's how good they've been. I don't know what is preventing some Brewers fans' hearts from being fully invested in this team. Get invested. Is it going to lead to heartbreak? Probably. (laughs) Is this going to break your heart? Probably. But it'll be fun when you're in it. It's a momentary heartbreak for what could be months and months, two more months of a lot of fun, and hopefully winning baseball down the stretch in October baseball. They have been off to about as good a start in the second half as you could expect. Real quickly, the Open Championship. Let me just load up the leaderboard right now. The last time I looked, it was not good. We had Rory to win the Open leaderboard. Yeah. Whoa, we have Jordan Speed top 10. Jordan Speed, we have top 10. Scotty Scheffler, we have top 10. Those are the other two bets that we made in addition to Rory winning. He was the favorite at plus 820. Jordan Speed is in second. That top 10 bet's looking good. That was at plus 140, I want to say, for Speed, And I want to say Scheffler's might have been minus 110. He is in 13th. Okay, those two bets are in place. Scotty Scheffler is in 13th, and Speed is second to Brian Harmon. This is what's hard about betting on golf, everybody. I don't know what the odds would have been with Brian Harmon. I assume he's going to fall off at some point over the weekend, but he was six under in round two. He is 10 under, five shots ahead of Jordan Spieth as round two is happening right now. McElroy, did he get any better than one under? This is a good radio break. This is good. This is solid podcasting right here. Where is my boy? Nope, he stayed at one under. That's good for 13th place, but he's nine back of Harmon. It's going to be tough. That's a tough road to climb, being nine back before Saturday even starts. That's who we have, though. Hasn't been the greatest start in the world. Not bad. Good, not great, as they say. I do love the look right now of the Jordan Spieth and Scheffler bet. We'll keep an eye on those top ten throughout the weekend. Final major of the year. It's so weird to say that still with no PGA Championship in August. And then finally today, the Women's World Cup starts tonight. Team USA, the odds-on favorites. They are plus 175 to win the whole thing. England, the second best odds at plus 525. That's how big of a gap there is. Now, look, it's soccer, and anything can happen. And I, from what I've read, I don't follow women's soccer that closely or any soccer that closely. From what I've read, this is not the strongest U.S. women's team. They have won multiple World Cups and multiple gold medals. They have dominated the sport in ways that the men's team that we dream of seeing them being able to do at some point. This is not their strongest team in the world. They are still the heavy favorites. They are. I've never seen a number like this. They take on Vietnam tonight. Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. They are minus 75,000 to win this match against Vietnam tonight. In my life, I have never seen that. You have to bet $75,000 to win $100. I've never heard of such a thing. In fact, and I know it's not very patriotic, it almost makes me want to throw a little bit of money on Vietnam just in case they win at plus whatever. They're not plus 75000 I don't think that anyone would allow that. They're probably plus $10,000. $100 would win 10000 if they somehow won. My feeling is Team USA is going to win this probably 10 to nothing or 8 to nothing, some crazy score like that. I've just never seen that as a money line bet. 75000 to win $100. That is tonight, Friday, if you're listening to this on Friday. It's 8 o'clock start time kickoff tonight, and it's on Fox. That'll do it for us here on your Friday. We'll get back after it on Monday. If we get to a point where the Brewers win that series, Monday's podcast, heading into trade deadline week, 
It is going to be a public 30-minute plea. It probably is anyway, but especially if they win this series against the Braves, the best team in baseball, it is going to be a 30-minute plea to Matt Arnold and Mark Atanasio to make one huge move and one sub-huge move before the deadline, which is only 10 days away. We'll be recapping that, and we will talk a bit about the Open Championship. We'll see if those two top 10 bets can hit. Maybe Rory can get a huge comeback here or Harmon falls apart. That's always in play, at the especially at the Open Championship. We've seen that. Was that the Vondeveld one back in the 90s where he had that huge lead late and just had an utter meltdown, had those pants rolled up and taken shots in the water? Guys have fallen apart at the Open Championship at the British Open. Maybe Rory can make a run for the weekend, but we'll recap that on Monday as well. We'll chat with you then.